peace. Thank you, choir. Under pressure, what's up when life's feeling so down? Well, each week, for the past six weeks now, we've been walking through the life of someone who's been experiencing a serious trial in their life from Scripture, and we've been doing that to see how God uses trials and how the follower of Christ is to respond to trials. And today we go to Job. So let's just do this. Let's just get at it. Open your Bibles to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Right before Psalms, go to Job chapter 1. In fact, as you're doing that, uh, if we didn't get the note on it, and anyone on the left side there, if you have the friendship register, if that hasn't gotten passed across, if you could do that just to let us know that you're here today, that would be great. Job chapter 1. You know, going to the book of Job for me is like going to Isaiah chapter 6. Small groups, you know about that. You've done that in recent weeks. It's kind of like going to Revelation chapter 4. It's just one of those passages of Scripture where there is this sense of awe about it. This uh, uh, sense of, of we are treading on a holy ground. We are treading, we are about to tread on ground of that which we know not of. Um, it is the kind of treading on ground where it's exciting, and we go, wow, this is so cool. We are delving into a realm of life that we so often just don't even grasp. It's so exciting. Wow. And yet at the same time, it's the type of thing where as we go into this, we realize that it's like it's a knee shaking. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my there are things too big and far too great for me to even begin to put all together. But God has allowed us to get a glimpse into things that are far and above even what I might be able to fathom. So I just want to say this. This is an insane week. We are covering the book of Job. And uh, obviously there's a number of things you won't be able to hit but um, let's brace ourselves, and I mean that serious. In fact, let me pray. Lord, I ask for your help today. We enter this text with humility. We must enter this text with humility. And we would ask that you would help us to see you, Lord. May we leave this text gripped by you. In a greater way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Job chapter 1. Well, we start with the scenes. Two scenes are set for us, and the first one is a scene on earth. We are on earth in the land of Uz. Here we go. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. Please understand, this is not a fictitious man uh, living in the fairy land of Oz. This is a real man living in the territory of what's called Uz at the time. He's a real person, and this is a guy who's living set apart unto the Lord. The text tells us he's blameless, he's upright, he's horizontally honorable, a man of integrity, and he's vertically a man of integrity with the Lord. He fears God, that wow and oh my reality, and he turns from evil. Verse 2, 
we continue to learn more about this guy. There were born to him seven sons and seven daughters. He was a father. How many kids did Job have? How many total? Ten kids. Excellent. Excellent. Your addition is improving. Seven sons, three daughters, ten kids. He's a father. Verse 3. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, to that, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. Listen, he's one who fears the Lord, he's walking with God, he's a father of 10 kids, and he's a tycoon. I don't have time to go into the tycoonness of it, but take my, uh, just take my word for it. This guy is wealthy, stinking rich in his day. He is literally kind of a Bill Gates in that section of the world at the time. That's how wealthy this man is. That's what the text is trying to help us to see. We learn some more about him. Verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their, count, their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would arise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Understand what's being set out here is now we are learning that Job is a man who fears the Lord and lives it in his home. Why do I say that? If you will, let me put it in this context. At each child's birthday, there would be a feast. And that feast would include all the siblings. By the way, a testimony of a family that actually enjoyed each other, that really enjoyed being together. Uh, this wasn't a drunken binge frat party, but this was a family celebration. Afterwards, Job would act as the Old Testament family father who, who was officiating as the priest in behalf of the family to consecrate them, to dedicate them, to declare them ritually acceptable to God. That's what's taking place here. Job provided a lot of things, but make sure of this. The vertical was first to him. And that's what the text is laying out for us. Guys, pay attention if you're a father tells a lot about what a man after God's own heart looks like. Job was the spiritual centering foundation for the family. That's the scene on earth. Now we turn to a scene in heaven. This is freaky. Hold on. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Okay, not so freaky yet. But here's what's happening. For some reason, God has declared for all of the heavenly hosts to come and present themselves before the Lord. Now, when God says come and present themselves before the Lord, all who are in submission to him come. It's not like I'm busy. It's not like wait till I finish the video game. It's not like wait for a little while or I got something more important to do. You don't have enough authority. Listen, everyone comes and presents themselves before the Lord. And look who also was there. And Satan also came among them. <laughs> I love this. This is such a mind-bending, stretching, theological working deal. Listen, I want for you to understand, in case you don't know Scripture real well, or you're new in your walk with Christ, that Satan was originally a created angel of God. 
Satan was created and demons were created, angels, for the purpose of worshiping God. But in time past, there came a time where Satan wanted to, in essence, be like God. He wanted to be as God. He wanted to be worshiped as God. And so God made a judgment, an eternal judgment, upon Satan and upon those who were with him. And the scriptures tell us about a third of the heavenly hosts left heaven and were sent to earth. And so here is this thing taking place. So that's the background of it. And I have to add this. I will never forget. It's been 20-some years now. I was at a conference in southern Indiana. A man was speaking at this conference. And he made a statement, and he said this. Satan is God's Satan. Now, that was a time in my life where Karen and I were just working through a whole bunch of things and our thinking and sovereignty of God and a number of things. And I remember that statement. At first, I didn't understand what was going on. And uh, then I, as time went on and I took what he had talked about, it's this. Listen, do not get the impression that God and Satan are on equal power terms. Okay? God is God, Satan is not. God can be all places, all times, all-knowing, all-powerful, all things. Satan can't be. One place, one time. By the way, if you ever say Satan is really tempting me, I just want to say, I think that's bad theology because how do you know he's at that one place right where you are right now? This, this whole day, part of this is about sharpening your thinking about your theology. Understand, in this process, Satan is put under the parameters. And when God says, Satan, present yourself, he comes with his little spiky tail, or whatever he has, and comes and he presents himself before the Lord. Satan is God's Satan. God is in control of Satan. God has set a parameter of time for him to be able to do what he can do, and we're going to see some of that for a period of time. But please understand, God is sovereign even over Satan. That's a work your head, isn't it? Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? (laughs) He's just engaging a dialogue. Satan answered the Lord, said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. Creepy, but real. And by the way, it's not just Satan, but it's Satan and demons. Verse 8, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? think a little bit later in chapter 2 we'll see that there's was some inciting going on here and god brings up have you considered my servant job that there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears god and turns away from evil listen satan is going to and fro walking around on the earth and then he presents himself before god and god says to satan hey satan Have you watched my man Job in your little bizarre walking? He's blameless. He's upright. He fears the Lord. He turns from evil. Why did Satan need to see that? Because that was his problem. Because Satan was none of those Listen, if you, at times you're like, no, I just wish God paid attention to my efforts and really trying to walk with him. He does. He does. Be encouraged. The Lord is fully aware. 
And Job is not about to be God's pawn. Job is about to be a ministry tool for the Lord. To be a living testimony before Satan himself. As I understand the text, I don't think Job knew any of this dialogue that was taking place. We don't see anywhere in the text where it shows this. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and actually brings up quite a pretty good point. Uh, But does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and on his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, Lord, and touch all that he has uh, and, and he will curse you to your face. In other words, God, you've made everything so posh for this guy. I mean, everything's just wonderful for him with what's taken place. I mean, no wonder he worships you. He's like mega rich. He's got everything. Kids, nice family, real rich. His life is made out. No wonder he worships you, Lord. Take all that away, and I guarantee he'll curse you to your face. Inciting going on here, verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. Do you see that? God puts parameters. Satan is God's Satan. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Uh, That's the scene being set. And now, my friends, all hell breaks loose. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And Job, the Sabians, fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. (laughs) While this guy's talking, all of a sudden another guy comes in. And there came in another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And the door was opening while he was talking. And another one comes in and says, Job, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, there came another and said, This is the fourth one. Your sons and your daughters, Job, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And Job, they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, all the hired hands but four, seven sons, and three daughters. Gone. can't even imagine. A tycoon is now a pauper. The father is fatherless. And the mother is 
They know nothing of the dialogue. May I remind us that Satan is really wicked? <laughs> Scriptures say like a roaring lion. He's just looking, prowling around looking for whomever, whatever he can devour. Why is he doing all this? To get at God. And yet, God has given the parameter for him to be able to do this. How could God do this? This is so unfair. God has taken the lives of these young ones. I mean, that is unfair. Oh, listen, I don't have time to delve into it in great depths, but their life was cut short. It's so unfair. Listen, that is such a one-world view. I understandable, but such a one-world view. Listen, any of those children standing before God, any of those servants, any of those camels or donkeys or sheep, standing before God and going, you cut my life short. You ripped me off, God. Think that's going to take place? It might for about a nanosecond in their thinking until they see God. And they're going to be falling on their face like Isaiah did in 6 and John did in Revelation 4. And to us, from a one-world thinking, that's unfair. From a two-world reality, where there is a God overall, to die is to be with the Lord if you know the Lord is your Savior. And if you don't, you cannot accuse the Lord of wrong. None of those children, none of those servants will be able to rightly accuse the Lord of having been unfair and cruel. It's just one more thing in this text that causes us just to rework our thinking about how we look at life. Wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Take it home. Wonder on it. But in this all, this hell has broken loose. And God and Satan are, if you will, watching. Now what's going to take place? What's going to happen? What happens? Verse 20, then Job arose tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and what? Get out of here. Well, that must have just been right at the moment that, you know, it was just he was in shock, and he just fell and kind of did what he normally would do. Well, if, if that was true, which it isn't, uh, good for him, because that's a great habit. But the fact of the matter is, it's just the whole text telling us of the shaving of his head. There's an entire thinking process behind that. There's a time period behind that of the process of going and preparing yourself. That's why he was doing it. This is a process of preparing yourself to come worship. And he's shaving his head and his kids are dead. And he's getting ready for this and his kids are dead. And he's wrestling through this and yet he falls down and worships God. Unbelievable absolutely blow your mind unbelievable how could he do that well, let's keep going and he said look at the thinking thinking drives living 
And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. Listen, I didn't bring myself into this world. I can't bring myself out of this world. I came in with nothing. I'm leaving with nothing. Naked I came, naked I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Do you see that? Do you see that? Oh, by the way, next time when you and your thinking come with this idea that everything good in life is from God and anything bad that happens is from Satan, be careful. Because while there is some truth to that, a sovereign Lord is behind this. And Job knows that. Even though I don't think he knows any of the dialogue that went on. Good theology is critical. And here Job is, the Lord gave, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow, that's why he worshiped. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Chapter 2, verse 1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came along with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from you? Does this sound like Groundhog Day? You know, are we just repeating something here? That's what's going on or what's happening here? Wait a second. Look at, look at the next words. God says to Satan, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. This is the second time. How long later? Don't know. Minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years? Don't know. It was sometime later. Sometime later. And Satan, or God still says, look at my man. Uh, boom, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Not a pawn, but a living testimony before Satan himself. Verse 4, then Satan answered the Lord and actually makes another good point. Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone in his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. In other words, take all the stuff away. Okay, I can get that. And crud, I wish he would have cussed you out. But now go at his skin. And guess what happens? And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Again, parameters. Satan is God, Satan. Verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Unbelievable. Can you imagine? Can't. What's he going to do now? Well, all hell is broken loose on the life of Job, and now all counsel breaks loose. And it starts with his dear wife. By the way, his wife who also lost everything and his wife who also lost her children. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity, honey? Curse God and die. I really wonder if that's the tone. 
listen, understand in Job chapter 1, and I don't quite know the tone here, and so I want to be careful and not take the text beyond what it's saying, but uh, there is a part of me here that says, listen, she's just lost everything. She's lost her kids. And she has seen a husband in chapter 1 who has been living for the Lord like no other man on the planet. This has been a blessed woman. And she's seen a husband who's been worshiping the Lord all her life, all his life, in a reverent and honorable way. And I just wonder if this time it's like, honey, apparently it's for naught. Just curse God and die. And now she's watching her husband. His skin peeling off his body. could totally see a wife saying that. Just curse God and die. So I want to be careful on her. Verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. <laughs> Loving words, but true. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? You see the theology again coming to the table? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Uh, she's responding to the personal devastation she sees. Job stands for truth and corrects her. And I just want to say this. Oftentimes when you stand for truth, expect criticism. And oftentimes expect it from those most close to you. That's Mrs. Job. Now some friends, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. The reason they give the places where they came from is because they're quite a ways away. And they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. Hey, you know, sometimes you hear about someone who's just sick or down and out, and then you see them and it blows you away. Look at how blown away these guys are. They wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground. How many days? And how many nights? And no one spoke a word to him. The ladies are going, yeah, that's the way guys communicate. Uh... No, it's uh, maybe so. <laughs> but I just want to say, uh, they didn't say it. Well, here it says, for they saw that great was the sovereign. I just want to say, way to go, friend. Way to go, dude. Then they just come and they're whiffed. And they're just there. They were really wise in the beginning because they were just whiffed. And they weren't bringing any bad theology to the table that's about to come. Well, after the seven days, chapter 3, verse 1, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Now, I will say this. There's a part of this to me right at this moment where I kind of go, he is a real guy. I'm sorry, bear with me. I got a cold. There. But here in this... Uh, 
all this time, it's kind of like Job is like supernatural, superhero, spiritual, like I can't even relate. Oh, I can relate now because I probably would have been doing this in chapter 1. And yet Job curses the day just briefly in chapter 3, verse 11. He says, why? Verse 12, why? Verse 20, why? Verse 23, why? Now we start to ask the whys, understandable in all of this. Well, this is the point in time to keep moving on here where all of a sudden his friends begin to speak. They've been silent for seven days. Then Job speaks, curses the day of his birth, and then it's time for them to respond. And they have actually a number of some good things to say. But I will say this, they have some bad theology mixed in with some of their, as we'll say, modern-day Christianese talk. They have wrong theology on suffering. And just go read through it because it goes from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 37. In this whole dialogue, one speaks and then Job speaks and then one speaks and Job speaks. And I'll tell you, it's really interesting watching the thinking coming to the table, watching their theology coming to the table. They had a bad theology of suffering and it was this. Personal calamity is the consequence of a personal sin. You, Job, are experiencing all this calamity because there is sin in your life, Job, and you need to confess it. And we already saw in Job chapter 1 and 2 how God saw him. But they were coming at this theological premise that was bad. You've been spanked, and you only get spanked because of sin. Therefore, you need to admit your sin, and the spanking will stop. Real quick, Job chapter 42, verse 11. At the end of the story, we won't be able to have time to get to. But verse 11, it says, Then came to him after all this, all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comfort to him for all the disaster that the Lord, that the Lord had brought on him. What's your theology of suffering? Well, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, I'll call Eliphaz the suggester. He's kind of the guy I would want to have in the hospital room giving me bad theology because he's more of a, he tries to suggest and convince. Um, it ends up getting into accusing Job of disrespect and defiance because Bildad, the instructor, I'll call him, Bildad, the instructor, is a little bit harder. He tries to instruct Job from worldly sounds good bad theology he's teaching him from teaching of the past that also frankly i think his wife had bought into and then there's zophar zophar is the guy you do not want next to you in the hospital room zophar the rebuker he just straight out accuses job right to the point of saying job is receiving less punishment than he actually deserves thanks friend All of this talk is going back and forth. Job is defending himself. And I want to take a moment and I want to say this again. I applaud the efforts of these friends to comfort and counsel Job. But this is a great example of how counsel that is mixed with bad theology is disastrous. 
bad, weak theology integrated in with some biblical truth, just study this passage. I'm astounded today at how followers of Christ are embracing and defending some of the premises of our day that are not biblical. Life premises. Premises driven by Freud and Maslow and Rogers and others. And excuse me, we didn't know truth till these guys came along? Have you ever read about their attitude and their heart towards God? Frank Sinatra, Oprah, Snoop Dogg, Lady Gaga, whomever. Where are you grabbing your theology from? And are you so careful about it that you're taking it and putting it up to Scripture and making sure it's right? Because man, itching ears, we got them. And God's word in all of this is seen as outdated. It's seen as antiquated. God's words are seen as unpractical. God's words, they're seen as limp. Please, come to the truth. Job says friends had good hearts. But good hearts mixed with bad theology is disastrous. And go to Job 42, verse 7, write it down and go to it later on. Because there, God addresses these three friends. And God says that his anger burns against them. Yeah, it's that serious. Why was God's anger burning against them? Because the bad theology moved along with all the nice other stuff in it was literally aiding and abetting Satan's position. Yeah, tell him he's the sinner. That's right. Tell him he's the sinner. Tell him that's why all the bad's coming to the table. Yeah, that's what it's all about. And God's like, excuse me, that's not at all what's happening here. And bad theology mixed with a lot of nice Christianese, is bad. Be careful. Got my point on that one? Watch your theology. Job, during this time, he's defending his right to lament, which he should. He denounces his friends for their insistence that he deserves suffering from some sin that he has. <laughs> it tells how he speaks of God's greatness. In the dialogue, he even sings at one point of God's greatness. But Job also complains to God how God is treating him. He complains about the injustices that he's seen others experience. I can relate to this. And this all moves into accusing God for being overly cruel to him. And then uh, young Eli, who speaks up, bless his heart, way to go. The last one to speak, rebukes the three friends and Job's for their bad thinking, brings a big God back to the table, and I want to have us finish in the last four chapters. Go to Job 38. I'll just say this. I think this is one of the most amazing couple chapters of Scripture 
in the entire Bible. When you grasp a hold of the picture of what's taken place, bless this guy's heart, the tragedy he's gone through, the pain he's gone through. I'm just going to tell you, just straight up, friends, I read through this, I think I would have been cursing God way before this. And he's gone through all this, and then his friends are getting in his face wrongly. (laughs) And it's like, this is the time for God just to come and give him a big hug. You know, but look, this puts so much into perspective. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. This is the time God has to speak. (laughs) Chapter 38, verse 2. This is God speaking. Who is this that that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I like the better translations of gird your loins up like a man. It just sounds cool. Hey, Job, gird your loins up like a man. I will question you and you will, you will uh, make it known to me. And here's how I'm going to cover this text. Look at some of the beginning words. Verse 4, just to get a feel. Where were you? Verse 5, who determined or who? Verse 6, or who? Verse 8, or who? 12, have you? Uh, four, 16, have you? Uh, 18, have you? I'm just going to keep going. Where is? Have you? Have you? What is? Who has? Has? From whose? And who has? Uh, Can you? Can you? Can you? By the way, I'm verse 33. Do you? Can you? Can you? Can you? Who has? Who can? Who can? Can you? Who? Chapter 39. Do you know? Do you observe? Can you number? Do you know? Can you bind? Will you? Will you? Do you? Do you give? Do you clothe? Do you make? Is it by your understanding? Is it by your command? Ay, 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 ay. This this is the point where I'm just ready for Job just to go, I'm out of this game. I'm done. I've done this and this and this and this. I've put up with all this stuff. And now you're chewing me out? But look, look here. I think the kicker is how Job responds. Okay? Look at how Job responds. Oh, by the way, at the end, 40 verse 2. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? That was the problem with Job. Job had been moving into finding fault with God. And then he says, he who argues with God. Job was arguing to the point, listen, questioning is fine. You see that in the Psalms all the time. But then it moves into that area where it's pushing God, arguing with God, finding fault in the Lord. Look how Job responds. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, love this. I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. You see that? He's just like, "Mm, I'm not talking anymore. (laughs) I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. I am of small account. Are you noticing, if you read this, nowhere does God explain the why. 
Nowhere does God explain the situation. Nowhere do we find God going, Job, listen, I just want to tell you, here's what's been happening. You know, Satan, I called all the heavenly hosts together. Satan came, and then he was kind of being a jerk. And so in this, we got in this thing, and I told him, look at you. And I was not using you as a pawn. Listen, Job, I was using you as an opportunity to minister to Satan himself. And in all this, and this is what's going on, Job. This is what's taking place, and this is why what's happening. None of that. You don't see any of that in these two chapters. Oh, by the way, you don't see any of that in the next two chapters. You see none of God doing that in any of the book of Job. To Job, what do you see? You see God not explaining himself, but revealing himself. God reveals who he is, and Job's like, oh, In all of it, I did. I forgot who you are. Chapter 40, verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, uh, uh, Oh, wait wait a second. Job, I appreciate the response. You are small, and I appreciate that. But listen to me just for a second. Uh, Gird your loins up like a man. Love that. And he goes on. Verse 8, Will you, will you, have you? Behold, behold. Can one? Can you, can you, can you? Behold, who has, who can, who can, who can, who can, all this kind of, all the way, all the way to Job chapter 42. Then Job answered, this is the second time, and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I love this. Listen, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. That's the kicker. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent. I, am, uh, I repent or I am comforted in dust and ashes. Job didn't need the why. Job needed the who. And after Job was reminded of the who, Job was completely satisfied. I got it back. I am a peon. I am a sinner undeserving of you, and you are mighty, you are God, you are over all things, you can do all things. You can do all things. You will always be righteous, you will always be perfect, you will always be holy, and I am always to worship you. Trials show me how big I see God. Trials show me how big I see God. Trials this big, how big's God to that? You know, oftentimes when trials are this big, I come to find out that really I see God as this big. Oh, I might have a great talk. I may talk like God is this big. God's God, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But then when trials come along, that's when we find out how big our God really is. And all the talk is just talk until the reality shows in it. And in all of this, Job came to see, and we look at Job and we go, my goodness, he saw God very big. But then there did come a point where God, his God wasn't big enough. 
And what a gracious, loving God. Doesn't burn them up, fry them up, chew them out to the point of just being arrogant and rude to him. He reveals himself and Job's like, you're bigger than I even understood before. Trials show me how big I see God. Maybe right now, if you're going through a trial, maybe for you right now, you're like, you know what? I haven't been seeing God very big. I want, I want to call you to repent. Confess it before the Lord. And get back at it with a bigger God. Trials show me how big I see God. And last, trials are opportunities for me to be a living testimony. Trials can be opportunities for me to be a living testimony. I covered Job because there's so much amazing stuff in it. But think of this. Job was a testimony to his wife. He was a testimony to his four friends, the three and his, as well as the uh, fourth one. He was a living testimony to everyone around. Remember, all the servants that died, their families knew about it. They understood what was going on. Oh, by the way, Job's been a living testimony to you and I. Oh, and by the way, Job was a living testimony before Satan himself, and he had no idea of it, I, I don't think. Friends, you never know what God is doing. But God is doing it for a purpose. Let's pray. God, we've uh, really endeavored to enter ourselves onto <laughs> some very uh, holy ground. Many of these things, uh, I realize we're going to walk away and go, I got to think about that. This is too great for me to understand. But how? But why? But where? Lord, we acknowledge that you are able. We acknowledge that you're sovereign. We acknowledge that you're perfect. We acknowledge that you're mighty. We acknowledge that you're the one to be worshipped. Lord, so far in this series, we've learned from Noah that some trials are lifetime ministry trials. From Abraham, that some trials occur to test our faith. And Joseph, that some occur to prepare and to place me. From David, that trials are opportunities to stand for the Lord publicly. And from Job, that trials can be living testimony opportunities for you. Father, I'm just really grateful that you are in the trial because it gives us hope and purpose. Stretch our thinking. Help us to be people of good theology. In your name we pray. Amen.